0: Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country.
1: We believe knowledge is the most important tool
0: we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice
1: and what we actually do on the ground.
0: We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law here at Arizona State University. And you're listening to Measure Justice. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today's episode marks the first of our series on leaders and legends of criminal justice reform. We're fortunate to be joined by a true legend of modern criminal justice reform, Pat Nolan, Director Emeritus of the American Conservative Union Foundation's Center for Justice, now named the Nolan Center for Justice. Uh, There is so much to cover with Pat that we've divided this episode into two parts, the first of which you'll you'll hear today. Stay tuned next week for part two of our conversation. Pat Nolan, thank you for joining us today. Great to be with you. Patrick James Nolan was born on June 16, 1950 in Los Angeles, California grew up in uh, the Southern California area in a, um, a well-established family that had a significant historical and socioeconomic roots in the valley. Pat, could you tell us a little bit about what your life was like growing up and um, and, and what were the things, the experiences that you had that were leading you on a path that would lead you to college and then into politics and then eventually uh, into being a major player in criminal justice reform? We've lived on Crenshaw Boulevard for the first uh, decade of my life. And
1: uh, it was a neighborhood in transition. Crime was, uh, frankly, a a part of our lives, unfortunately. Uh, Buck Baker, a neighbor, was uh, shot coming out of uh, 630 Mass at our local parish. Um, My brother, uh, older brother, was a delivery boy for Wright's pharmacy. He returned for a delivery to find the elderly owners, Mr. and Mrs. Wright, bound and gagged. Uh, and beaten uh, uh, for, for drugs. My uh, eldest brother got involved in marijuana early, which was, uh, you know, then um, not as common as it is now. It, it was a searing existence. Uh, my family moved to Burbank from there, which was a nice middle class community. Uh, There was crime, but, you know, not nearly the extent that it was on Crenshaw. Uh, And I I was active uh, in sports uh, there, and I uh, became a member of the police explorers there, uh, uh, you know, uh, which was a a really formational experience. We had wonderful uh, police officers that were uh, the leaders of our liaison and Um, I I learned a lot from them about the life of policing and what works
0: and what doesn't work. So um, you were going uh, to Notre Dame, Notre Dame High School, correct? Is that? Yes.
1: And that's Catholic, a major
0: Catholic school in the the area? Yes.
1: Uh, And uh, that the brothers and priests of the Holy Cross were uh, seminal in uh, my, not only my faith formation, but my worldview and also the importance of public involvement being concerned about the common good and uh, being active uh, in it. I uh, then went to USC. uh, 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 My uh, older sister began our Trojan tradition. My mom incidentally had gone to UCLA. She graduated in the first class uh, from UCLA uh, in Westwood. And uh, we always teased her that, you know, uh, our, uh, our generation improved on the prior one. Uh, and uh, there's six a series them, in LA there's a series of divided families that uh, oh yeah folks, aren't <laughs> and, and of course my dad always rooted for Notre Dame so <laughs> you know <laughs> we had a very divided household but six uh, myself and uh, five of my brothers and sisters went to USC and graduated and I think now there are like uh, 32 of our relatives that are Trojans and uh, there's a great, there's a
0: great picture of you, Pat, that I that you shared with me, um, of you on top of Traveler and Traveler. Um, for the, yeah, uh, no, that is the, that mascot, certain, of, yeah. Yeah, the mascot of, the mascot of the USC Trojans, and it, famously at the Coliseum when USC scores a touchdown, um, there is a rider, a Trojan who is on top of Traveler and rides around the Coliseum, and that was you. Tell us what that experience was like. Uh, well, I was only in the Rose Parade in '74. Uh, but because uh, the the
1: regular Tommy Trojan then Dick Sacco was writing as the Grand Marshal of another uh, 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 writers mounted silver whites they uh, they called them and uh, uh, as the SC mascot Tommy Trojan you don't get in the program but as Grand Marshal of his group he got his name in the program so Dick wanted that and he asked me to sub for him and and it was so exciting. Um, it, uh, you know, the crowds, of course, <laughs> the Trojans were very supportive. The, uh, <laughs> the opponents, uh, yelled through things, uh, waved at me with a single digit, uh, you know, so it was uh, quite, uh, quite, quite
0: something. You, you, got the, you got the full Monty, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: My, uh, that, my you, grandfather had ridden in the Rose Quake, uh, uh, on a group of Palomino's. He was... Very prominent in LA, and so my mom was just thrilled to see her son ride where she'd also seen her dad uh, ride in
0: in the same parade years earlier. Um, a lot the, the history there is is rich, and I, I know that yeah. you decided after graduating from USC. And, and what did you what, what did you major in there, Pat? By I was a political science major, um, and
1: uh, I, I have to say, my brother Tom rode for probably eight or nine years as Tommy Trojan, not only in the Rose Parades, but in the Rose Wall too. So it it became a family tradition too. But yeah, I I was a poli sci major and uh, my professors were good. It's not like academia today where uh, there's sort of ideological rigidity. Uh, They didn't cancel people. I had a professor that was very liberal who was chair of the department who really encouraged my political activity. In fact, later on in life, he would have me come out, uh, he became chair of a department out at the uh, uh, Claremont Colleges and he'd have me uh, speak to his graduate students. So uh, there was um, a healthy give and take ideology. And uh, while I was at USC, I worked for city councilman John Ferraro, who uh, became president of the city council and uh, that's part of the way I waited on tables and, and worked for John to help pay my way through. And uh, he'd been chair of the police commission. So from him, uh, he was a Democrat, uh, very conservative, and he really took me under his wing. He mentored me and I learned so much from him uh, about just the, you know, policies are important, but frankly, personality and the ability to work with people you don't agree with is essential if you're going to be effective. I saw that with John and he really nurtured that uh, spirit. Um, It's interesting. While I was at City Hall, two of my uh, soon-to-be colleagues, Maxine Waters, uh, who, of course, is famous nationally, Mike Bruce became majority leader in the Assembly. uh, They were there in the City Hall with me uh, working and... um, there's it's it's a small
0: it's a it's an interesting time because there was a series of, of of individuals who had become very prominent. You mentioned Maxine Waters, but I have this great picture of you. This is a little bit later, with uh standing and talking with Willie Brown, who of course is legendary uh as a yeah. Democrat. Um, yeah. uh and um this this sounds like very early on you had already been you saw politics as an important area in which policy was made, or the area in which policy was made, and you saw that it it would require sometimes working across the aisle.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, and uh, I I actually got very politically involved when uh, Reagan first ran for governor. I was on the ground floor of his campaigns when he first ran for governor. And people don't realize at that point uh, he was not favored to win the Republican primary. The establishment was very much opposed to him. Uh, the same... Uh, mantra we heard later, oh, he's too conservative. He's just a cowboy. He can only read lines. But uh, I saw him up close and personal. And boy, he he really, uh, he'd studied policy and was very good at explaining it. And he cared. He cared about the average Joe. And through that, I became familiar with his whole campaign team, Ed Meese, Lynn Nafziger, and you know, developed relationships. So, uh, from undergraduate, I went to USC Law School. My mom had been a legal secretary. My older sister uh, went to USC uh, ten years before me, law, undergrad and law school. And um, in those days, it was rare for women to uh, to go to law school. She was uh, one of only two women in her class. She uh, was much smarter than me. She was. Uh, law review and order of the coif and uh, re- really a sharp person uh, so that interested me uh, her she, she she really inculcated me and my mom with a love of the law. so I went to law school and and then went to practice um, uh, with a great firm it was uh, we defended people for insurance companies, doctors, hospitals, drug companies, uh, we represented uh, uh, Myers, um, Miles Labs in the famous diethylstilbestrol cases, um, and I won nine out of nine out of ten motions for summary judgment. But uh, but we also represented municipalities. Uh, we represented all the deputy sheriffs in LA County in officer involved shooting cases. We represented the governments of uh, Riverside, San Bernardino uh, orange and, uh, counties, uh, not only the counties, but all the special districts in them. So I got a flavor for municipal law as well. And, uh, the seat in which, uh, we lived since I was 10 in Burbank and the surrounding area, the, uh, assembly seat opened up. And while I enjoyed practicing law, I, uh, the, As an example, I was frustrated by the law because on the same day in two different courtrooms, I had to argue the exact opposite uh, for two different motions I had. And, And it frustrated me because, of course, the courts had ruled a certain way. And so it helped our client in one case and didn't in the other. And so that's what I had to do. But I thought I want to be where I can help make these policies, not just. Be a mouthpiece, literally arguing opposite sides uh, in the same courthouse on the same day, and uh, and so I ran. Uh, I was young. Now, this, was uh, a, th-
0: this was an interesting time, wasn't it? this? Was uh, I was I was looking at this, and I was a child there in San Diego, and I, and you were of course uh, it had been in L.A. and were now practicing attorney, and propos- some called Proposition thirteen came up, and this was a huge yes off- tax law. And I guess maybe similar to other phenomenon where there's been a a kind of sea change or a um, you know yes. a, the old guard being shown the door and the new guard being introduced. Um, this was a, a a kind of a sea change for California politics. And this was uh, this you were part of that group that came in. Is that right?
1: Uh, yes, I, I had been active in the tax reform movement uh, long before uh, Prop 13. Uh, our uh, the county assessor felt it was. Uh, absurd, the uh, uh, the high taxes that were being imposed on uh, people in LA. As home prices increased, they were knocked into higher and higher brackets of taxation. So middle-class people were paying a fortune in property taxes. Howard Jarvis came along. Uh, I worked with him. He was really a character. Uh, he did a rally for me in that first election. Uh, he signed a letter, which went to uh, All the voters uh, supporting me. And uh, yes, we were part of uh, the Prop 13 generations when we got to Sacramento that said the old way of doing business isn't serving the people. And um, we uh, were very uh, impactful. Uh, What was it like
0: as a young young lawmaker? You arrive in Sacramento and you're, uh, tell tell us what those first few years and and, and the development of your of, of your career there?
1: I was really fortunate. Bob Moretti, who'd been a speaker of the assembly, graduated from Notre Dame high school. And he was sort of the beau ideal of the tr- Notre Dame Knights. Uh, and uh, when I got to Sacramento, he took me under his wing. He was a Democrat, I was a Republican, but he was really helpful to me. Then Jess Unra, who'd also been Speaker of the Assembly, uh, he also reached out to me because his chief of staff had gone to Loyola High School and was active in Young Americans for Freedom with me. And uh, I'd worked with him when I worked for John Ferraro because he was a constituent. So um, those personal relationships. And then my aunt had been uh, assistant to the general manager of the L.A. Chamber of Commerce and was really beloved there. Um, And she had people that just adored her in Sacramento. Uh, And uh, so that was a great entree to people. Because what I learned over the years is personality, frankly, has a lot more to do with your ability to get things done than policy. Now, you try to advance policy, but it's your personality, your ability to get along and work with people that um, matters. And, uh, and, and because of those relationships, I, w- I was able to, uh, you know, even though we were the minority party in both houses, in the first two years, Jerry Brown was governor. So I was a triple <laughs> in a minority, but I was still able to get legislation passed. Uh, and, uh, and, and through their guidance and mentoring, I was able to, to be effective, but it was, um, I, I think I was a little full of myself. I was tw- 28 years old when I was sworn in and, um, one of the youngest at, uh, at that time, right? That yeah. Was, yeah, you know. uh, I was, and, um, uh, and I was single. So, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was quite fun, uh, uh up there. Um, and uh, what <laughs> things- you
0: mentioned, you mentioned, mentioned these series of folks you mentioned, Unruh, and that's that uh, is that the Jesse Unruh of the, the Unruh Act? Is that the- yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, so a, a kind of a lion of, of civil rights, um, uh, oh, yeah, California, yeah. And, and and again, yeah. an example of working across the across the aisle, right? Uh, and in fact, Jess Under is famous,
1: uh, he and I became such dear friends, uh, his family asked him to be one of four people that eulogized him at his uh, funeral. So that that was a very It's a, it's a great honor of,
0: of a man who significantly impacted civil rights law in... in, in yeah, uh, oh,
1: and, and so many other things. and uh, uh, But he also is a very practical man. Uh, speaking of being young and up there and having fun as well as working hard, uh, he used to say about legislators uh, uh, and how to maintain your integrity even uh, with people that contribute to you and, you know, wine and dining. He said, if you can't eat their food, drink their wine, and I'll clean this up a little, make love to their women and still vote against them. You don't belong up here.
0: <laughs> and- <laughs> Politics is an interesting, interesting profession. Did you, when you were, and you had grown up and had, 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 and you, you mentioned Reagan had been a, um, uh, kind of an icon for yours and an individual of, uh, uh yes and it certainly had changed changed American politics through through the uh 80s if not before it, of course it affected who became who was nominated right. uh, uh 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 Ford being uh the nominee he was a potential candidate then and then when when uh, it came up uh against Carter uh, uh Reagan won eight years of 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 uh, of Reagan administration followed by some would consider another four years a continuation under George uh, H W Bush. Um, yep. What were your thoughts as a you're a lawmaker you're in the, the 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 early mid 80s and your agenda you saw it as a, uh, a a a continuation or an application of of the Reagan revolution in California or were there other uh, uh, other vistas that you were looking at at that time? Oh no, that uh, it was
1: definitely the Reagan agenda. Um, You know, uh, I'd supported Goldwater as a kid, walked precincts for him, but he, um, and and I admired him. He was a great libertarian, uh, very thoughtful man, but he tended to be kind of, uh, this isn't quite right, but left a negative impression. People were angry after, uh, at the things he pointed out that were wrong with government. He, would, he he didn't that. he didn't
0: he wouldn't uh he wouldn't curb his words. Uh, yes, oh, yeah. to make sure. To yeah. make sure. I mean he was yeah. what was his famous phrase about um about uh uh, uh being uh, about zealotry and non zealotry and 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 Oh, yeah.
1: No, uh that um, extreme extremism in defense of liberty is no vice and um pusillanimity uh in the name of I forget' is we'll, build, we'll build it later right
0: that 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 statement was taken as of course a um a dangerous one um many did not see it that way but many did and then of course it was followed up with um uh, uh with Johnson and that famous commercial of the uh, of a child with a uh, flower yes
1: with a flower and they they portrayed goldwater as a warmonger when in fact he he was a, a man of peace now he He felt we should have a strong military and he felt we should either win the war in Vietnam or get out, which is uh, frankly sort of like uh, Trump's view in Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, either win it or get the heck out stop having blood and treasure of Americans spilled into the sands. But he was misunderstood and mischaracterized. Reagan, however, came across as an optimist. He uh, was very aspirational he, uh, and inspirational. He always talked about we, not I. And that was really important. Uh, one of the sayings he absolutely hammered into us, uh, those that worked on the campaign is, there's no limit to the good you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And that, that is instrumental. If you're looking to be a show horse, you know, you're, uh, you're not going to help, uh, you know, make advancement, but if you're willing to supplement your ego to advance our goals and principles, you were welcome to be part of his team. And, uh, and that optimism carried over. In fact, when I became a Republican leader of the assembly, we put out, this is before Newt Gingrich's contract with America, we put out our platform uh, called an agenda of opportunity, and uh, we did it in the two election cycles that I was leader. And it was to present not just negative—you know, the Democrats are spending too much, and you know they're uh, uh, allowing too much mayhem—but uh, instead, positive steps we would make to improve uh, people's lives. And and on that positive vision, we came. Uh, when I ran for the assembly, there were only 23 Republicans in the assembly. Uh, when I stepped down as leader, uh, we were uh, at 36, only five were cho- votes short of electing uh, the majority and me becoming speaker instead of Willie Brown. So we made great progress with that positive Reagan-esque view. And of course, having been part of his campaigns, and I have to say one thing I noticed over the years that um, when Reagan was not in office, people took shots at him. When he was in office, he was, uh, you know, everybody loved him. But then when he ran for president in 68, they all deserved him. I was one of the few volunteers that went back to Mi- Miami to be a volunteer in the Reagan for president campaign in 68. And again, in 1976, when he ran against Ford, a lot of the Republicans in California stuck with Ford and said terrible things about Reagan. Uh, I, I was for Reagan. We almost won the nomination uh, from Reagan. And, uh, and the day after nomination, when he'd lost, he addressed our delegation and he quoted an old Scots ballad. He said, "Let me lay me down and let me bleed. I am wounded, but I am not slain. I will rise to fight again. And right there, he promised us, as he did to me privately in 68, I'd have another chance to work for him, that he would. And four years later, he was elected president and began really reforming a a sea change nationally. And uh, uh, of course, having been part of his team, uh, I was in the Oval Office and at the White House several times with him, not in the Oval Office, but a luncheon at the cabinet room and and he, he was a jokester as was I so we would trade uh jokes uh together and um, he he was so warm and personal i uh, i'm not nearly uh as uh, as uh you know uh well spoken and and polished as he is but we really hit it off uh on a personal way, uh, level and Lynn Officer, of course, was his political director, and then Ed Rollins, who had headed up our caucus staff uh, when I was in the assembly, became the political advisor after Lynn, and Dana Rohrbacher, who I'd been in youth for Reagan in 68 with, became his speechwriter, uh, one of his speechwriting team, and then got elected to Congress. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it was a friendly atmosphere, but there was a real sense that Reagan used to quote um, Sam Adams saying, "We can begin the world anew," and that that that's a powerful thought that we didn't have to just take things as they were, that we could make things better. And Reagan always referred to the shining city on the hill, that that, that aspiration that we could improve the lives of people, but not necessarily through government. Instead, by uh, freeing up the people to do for themselves that's why we called our uh, proposals the agenda of opportunity creating opportunity not more government programs so i learned a lot from him and it was an exciting to be part of his effort to change the country
0: it is i and I, i'm glad you brought up that imagery of the shining city on the hill and that that i as a child i remember um being Fascinated by and it's an imagery that goes back um, millennia, right? It's the idea that we can make a better place. That whether they're yes,
1: they're,
0: it's, it's the optimism, right? Optimism, yes, to, 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 yes, no doubt. And you and the people you talked about um, that that you were this this young group of folks that were in the middle of their career or, or maybe quite young. Um, I mean, these are now legends. You know, Lynn Noltsker, uh, Ed Rollins, Dana Robacher. This is a kind of a, a, a best and brightest of, cons- of of conservative America at the time. And you mentioned Ed Meese, of course, who was a, uh, a law had been a law professor at the University of, Sa- of San Diego, and so many of the folks that were the young uh, attorneys that were there with um, with uh, Ed Meese and 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 those in the White House would end up having very prominent positions uh, in government, including uh, Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, eventually, would make it there. So to tell us, this is the environment you're in. You are in, uh, uh, heavily involved in, of course, national politics, but also ca- obviously California politics. And the 1980s, they began. There were a uh, nationally, there was a, a scandal called ABSCAM and that, that ended up being uh, receiving a lot of attention and um, a, a lot of heavy federal investigation into um, into, into politicians and into money. Um, this, of course, we'd see bubble up uh, uh, for, for we saw it bubble up for years before, and of course, it's only intensified in the process that money is the lifeblood of of politics could you tell us a little bit about the that 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 experience you had the kind of a dark period and then and how it led into both what might have been the depth of your uh, the, the 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 depth of your the lowest point in your life but how it also became kind of a rebirth and uh, beginning of what uh, has been such an incredibly important part of uh, of your story
1: yeah i i was republican leader then uh like i say um five votes away from electing a majority um We'd raised uh, about $6 million, uh, which now is a pittance, but in those days was considerable, not nearly what Willie Brown raised, but uh, it made us competitive. And uh, there was a bill, uh, I, I need to take a step back, I, I'm a big Jack Kemp fan, he and I were dear friends, I was co-chair of his campaign when he ran for president in California, and uh, he too, was an optimist. Uh, he, he once told me, you know, he said, Pat, you have to be an optimist as a quarterback. You, can you imagine a quarterback coming into the huddle and saying, hey, folks, uh, we're down 10 points. I don't know how we're going get, to get to victory. No, he's positive. He's always got an idea how to do it. And that and was a very two.
0: smart man who eventually was the uh, Republican uh, vice presidential nominee with Bob Dole, correct? Yes. And also secretary of HUD, that's housing correct. and urban development,
1: and and he had sponsored enterprise zones. I sponsored in California, and in fact had to uh, work on enterprise zones and reach accord with Maxine Waters on it because she could block it uh, going through the legislature. So I'd been interested. In, having grown up in on Crenshaw, I saw the poverty there, the grinding poverty, and knew that more government wasn't the answer. Instead, we needed to free up the businesses within those uh, uh, low uh, employment areas. And uh, in fact, my uh, aunt who worked at the chamber uh, was the assistant to Chad McClellan, who after the Watts riots tried to organize businesses to uh, bring jobs into uh, the inner city of L.A. So uh, it was in my blood, if you will to try to unleash free enterprise to solve our problems. So uh, there was a proposal to, um, there's across the river from Sacramento is a a city called West Sacramento. It's just terribly poor and uh, was unable to really generate uh, interest to have jobs get there. And there was a proposal by uh, one of the Democrats to, uh, uh, there'd been a, a requirement that to get a small business loan, you had to have 10 million in capital. Well, it was just an arbitrary figure. And to an area that was so poor, like West Sacramento, um, and and all the other disadvantages of a business to locate there, uh, you know, that would have been virtually impossible. So the bill was uh, sponsored by a company that was gonna build a shrimp processing plant there. And the legislation said that for that uh, project, we would lower it from 10% to 5% capitalized. And, um, you know, that made sense to me. It sailed through both houses of the legislature. Unbeknownst to us, that legislation, the, the shrimp company was phony. It was an FBI front. And uh, they, <laughs> they've they since changed their methods. but. Uh, it didn't occur to them that a bill like that might pass. They just thought, "Oh, we'll dangle this out there, and people will milk it for what it's all it's worth, and we'll we'll get them." Well, uh, you know, again, it was good on its merits, uh, so we all voted for it. Well, they went to Governor DeMason and said, "Look, you've got to veto this bill uh, because it was a, we're a phony company." Well, rather than tell him to get out of his office. He instead lied to the people. They got him to lie to the people and say he was vetoing it because it was an improper use of the government. Uh, All of his staff, everybody said he would have signed it. But the FBI said, please veto it. And he did. But then lied to the people. Um, Nothing happened. And two years later, another bill came up that was the same. And I uh, voted for it again. Again, it passed both houses. I'd voted for similar legislation seven times. And there was uh, this front, FBI front, the shrimp company, kept saying they wanted to contribute to my campaign. And I told my aide that they kept uh, contacting, hey, you know, (laughs) have them send in a check. I mean, uh, you know, that I don't need to meet with them. Uh, They kept insisting and uh, we set up several meetings, you know, the legislative is as a legislator, uh, as the leader of the assembly, you, you know, you're just busy all of the time on the floor or, uh, in committees. And um, so uh, they set up several meetings to cancel. Finally, Waterman worked out. I went across the street and met with them. And, uh, you know, they said, uh, oh, we really want to elect the Republican majority. We're really for you. And they uh, had an envelope that I never even touched. They handed it to my aide and said, well, as we agreed, uh, here's uh, $10,000 to help you elect the majority. Well, they took that as I knew about an agreement. I didn't. They had told my aide, we want to contribute $10,000, which, again, I didn't think was that important to meet. But you should kept saying, oh, they really want to meet you, you know, and... Uh, the, the tape of the meeting shows they were really talking about, oh, we can't wait to see you up there as speaker and everything. And in the envelope were two checks, one to my own campaign account and one left blank. Well, uh, apparently what they told uh, Karen, my assistant, was uh, that they wanted to give 5,000 to the joint pack of Republicans. And so they left it blank. Well, afterwards it became very obvious They wanted me to put my name on it and put it in my pocket. You know, it never even occurred to me or Karen. It was deposited in the accounts, and no thought about it. Well, they came back later uh, and uh, raided my office, along with some other uh, uh, legislators, and uh, really derailed uh, our effort to elect a majority and ended my political career. I ended up going to prison. Um, I took a plea because they charged me, if you can believe it was six felonies, uh, uh, with mandatory minimums that would have, uh, sent me to prison for 21 years. Um, uh, my they, they, children, they put, you, they put
0: were, you to the choice, right? They, they was a, a, uh, a, a, an indictment that had a series of, of, of very, uh, strong sounding and very, certainly, uh, Harsh punishment, carrying um, uh, sentences, and ultimately. Um, well, in my,
1: I, I need to say, My children were five years, four years, and ten months old. Sure. Had you were I a young man. To, had I yeah. tried to had I gone to trial, and missed, and our consultant did a poll of potential jurors, and sixty six percent said I was guilty without hearing any facts. So. <laughs> It was going it to be seems it
0: seems stacked then, particularly if the if the predicates don't require um, a, a kind of a truly evil mindset. Oh, yeah. Uh, there, and that's there true in federal law, some types of laws that they they sometimes paid little attention, little heed to to those kinds of issues. And of course, there may be even a little bit of a um not necessarily a thumb on the scale, but a recognition that, that 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 the law says proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and the presumption and the presumption of innocence is in favor of the defendant, and the burden is always on the government. But there is almost a natural inclination of of ordinary folks, and with what people can readily understand, regardless of its fairness, that geez, the government must not have brought this unless, in fact, there was something there, right? Right, and accepted. and,
1: and add to that the fact that. You know, I was a politician in a scandal-ridden town. Now, uh, you know, I had all sorts of Democrats come forward and defend me and say, Pat's one of the straight arrows here. He, You know, he, he's not this. But, you know, jur- I would have had to gamble being away from my wife and children uh, a total of 21 years. And um, it broke my heart but I had to lie and say I was guilty uh, so that for a lesser sentence, which was uh, 33 months. And uh, I ended up doing 29 months in federal custody. Um, and- And two, uh,
0: two prisons, Pat, tell us where, where those prisons were and tell us a little yeah. about the li- what, what life was like. And given this background, uh, young man grew up in in, in Southern California, had been a success story, had gone to undergrad and graduate school at a prominent university, had done well as a young attorney, was elected and a leader within the Republican party in the California legislature, and was also making uh, headways on the national scene. And then this happens, and you end up uh, uh, convicted uh, and incarcerated. Tell, 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 Tell us what you were thinking then, what life is like, and what kind of changes uh, occur in your thinking and your life as a resu- uh, as a result of that experience of being incarcerated? Yeah, um, it was obviously quite a culture
1: shock. I was uh, the first prison was in uh, Dublin, California, uh, a suburb of uh, the East Bay, uh, the south of Berkeley. Um, it uh, had been an army camp uh, before uh, and uh, was converted into a prison. I was in the camp part. They also had a women's, you know, prison with all the barbed wire and everything else and the gu- guards circling with guns. And they also had a, a federal prison um, a detention center where they like a jail where they hold uh, defendants prior to trial. And um, the counselors, uh, my counselor I was assigned to was just awful. And she went out of her way to try to humiliate me. And uh, just one small example, Uh, when I uh, surrendered to the prison, the guard that met me uh, was supposed to be her, but she was off that day. So he turned out to be a wonderful guy. And he said, Uh, Gee, you know, uh, would you like to call your family and let them know you're here uh, and, um, you know, in your safe? And so I did. Then when she called me to her office the next morning, she screamed at the top of her voice. How dare you go around me? How dare you get that extra call? I'm the one that's supposed to decide whether you can call your family. You were dropped off here and that's all they need to know. And that's the way she treated me from then on. The other inmates, uh, of course, because I was high profile, there were all sorts of cameras there uh, you know, on a hill overlooking the prison uh, to capture my uh, surrendering. And so, you know, they all knew. But, uh, you know, they showed kindness right from the beginning. You know, they didn't have any uh, bunk prepared for me, no bedding, anything else. And so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, prisoners tend to squirrel away things like sheets and pillows and stuff and uh so uh, they they uh, did it and uh, one guy had some instant coffee that he had bought from the canteen here for use. usually he asked if I'd like a cup uh, and of course I did uh I'm a, <laughs> that's my real vice my addiction is to caffeine and coffee but um uh, they they treated me well and some were suspicious because they thought I would lord it over them because of my former position. In fact, the guy in the bunk next to me kept muttering under his breath, G, D, F-ing, uh, you know, politician, you know, on the take and this and that. Well, once he saw that I was an okay guy, he and I became very good friends. And even after I got out of prison and he got out, we remained friends became a very close friend of our family. But, um, uh, you know, he was suspicious at first. And there again, like in the legislature, I found just being a regular person, showing caring about them as people uh, and um, trying to be of help to them if they needed to write letters home or something like that. Uh, Most of them were illiterate and innumerate. Uh, A majority of the people in the camp had been arrested uh, during the Rodney King riots, mostly African-American, but some Hispanics. I, I became good friends with a lot of them. My lawyer told me, you know, Pat, uh, you're going to find, because he'd been an assistant U.S. attorney, but then was in defense work. He said, you know, you're going to find some really nice people in prison. You'll be surprised. And I did. Now, they, you know, they came from very different backgrounds than me and me. In most cases, but uh, some really close friendships. Uh, uh, some of them have died. Those I've stayed in touch with, but a couple are still alive, and we still uh, stay in touch. Once I once they saw I wasn't gonna be snooty and look down on them, uh, they became uh, nice. And uh, <laughs> I, the the warden, uh, like my counselor, really wanted to humiliate me, so. Uh, he had me working landscaping uh, outside in the elements. They didn't give me any rain gear and anything uh, uh, that, uh, but um, uh, then uh, the guy that uh, ran the, the officer that ran the garage hired me to work in the garage, which at least got me out of the elements. And uh, so the warden insisted that I be the one to drive the sweets street sweeper, because that's very public and. Out, you know, here I am driving this street sweeper. He thought that was very funny that I'd been, you know, a, a politician and now I was driving. Well, the other inmates, as a joke, made a little sign that the guys in the garage slapped her on the back of the sweeper without my knowing it. They said, Nolan for senator. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so everybody'd laugh
0: as I drove around. Finally, I realized
1: what was going on. But but the the biggest thing about
0: these people that were that that you saw some the bad side, you saw the kind of almost the captain, the cool hand Luke movie kind of. Yeah. And then you saw um, then there were decent people who were working within the system that were trying to help you out. And then there were um, folks who had been incarcerated that you maybe in a previous previous life uh, in your in your previous profession, in your previous experiences. Um, may not have been um, you had different might have had a different image of them and and oh absolutely yeah
1: Uh, but you know I I was raised in a family that said you know it's not your station in life it's who you are that's important and um, you know while my parents were college graduates you know with honors uh, we had friends that were you know tradesmen carpenters plumbers you know uh, noble people. <laughs> you know, it's their character that was important, uh, not their station in life. And uh, so I, I saw that there. And uh, I, I don't want to paint all of the staff as bad.
0: Of course uh, not. Was, ever- I would that the, the, the person who helped you out, uh, the officers who've helped you out, you mentioned several that, that did that. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that's true oh. in, of any institution. There are going to be, no institution is pristine and perfect and no institution is truly a at least as we hope not, is is truly a hellhole, right? That brings us to the end of our time today. Thank you for listening to part one of this month's podcast. Stay tuned next week for the second part of our conversation, where we'll talk about Pat's incarceration and the transformation he experienced. I wanna thank our guest for a really terrific discussion. Pat Nolan, Director Emeritus of the American Conservative Union Foundation's Nolan Center for Justice. Thanks also to our producer, Amina Ketchin Kamal. This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice.